and I left my violins, there were two of them in a case, a double case, uh, out on the street, in the parking lot right behind the van. And basically I backed into it and drove right over the, the double case. Thankfully, the acoustic instrument was fine, but the electric instrument that I actually was quite fond of because it was very unique, um, got totally destroyed. And they were sitting in a sort of a clamshell formation and it sort of hit one side of it. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and one of our most popular podcasts has been my two-part interview with Fan Dow, head of research and development for the Diodario Musical Strings Company. While a year after visiting the Diodario factory in Long Island and interviewing Fan, my wife Paul and I met up with Lyris Hung at a music festival. At the time, she was Director of Marketing for Orchestral Strings for Diodario. Lyris is also a talented musician who plays violin for the popular group Indigo Girls. Let's listen now to that interview. So my name is Lyris Hung, and um, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, back in the 70s. And uh, my parents were both immigrants. My dad came over from China by way of Canada. And my mom came from Hong Kong also by way of Canada where they met. And uh, they moved to the States, um, both started businesses and had me. And my mom was in the middle of her doctorate at Columbia. And my dad was an engineer. So... And are there places in China? I just, mm -hmm. I did, just popped into my sure. mind a question. Are there places that among the Chinese are considered to be more musical areas? You know, I'm not. Country? I'm not sure. I'm, uh, to be honest, not a hundred percent familiar with the current Chinese culture because I don't spend a lot of time there. Um, my parents never really were themselves very musical, though they enjoyed music. Uh, my dad was kind of a tinkerer, like in you know always kind of inventing stuff. So he was curious about music and we had a piano and I would take lessons and my dad would kind of toy around on it. And he had a, an old classical guitar, which was at, actually became my first guitar. And I, you know, again, like half-assed kind of, you know, plunked around and, and figured out tunes. Um, and so, and my mom would always sing pop songs and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, we weren't particularly focused on music. We were we were kind of artistic and, and enjoyed the arts, but it wasn't like a, mu a, a traditional musical family. And anybody going back several generations that you've ever heard that played an instrument? In my family? Yeah, seriously played. No, um, not directly in my family, no. Um, mm. there, you know, everybody on my mom's side was fairly middle class, uh, fairly well-educated. Um, my dad's side was uh, rather poor. Um, they came from a fishing village uh, where, you know, they didn't have too much of, of anything. So w they were more focused on, um, you know, getting food on the table <laughs> rather than uh, a lot of, uh, you know, artistic endeavors and that sort of thing. And I know you didn't grow up there, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, you take a movie like The Red Violin, mm -hmm. one whole chapter of that movie is around what was going on in China with Mao and the Cultural Revolution. Did they ever tell any stories about that? Did they 
they would have been just fairly young themselves. Yeah, they didn't. Um, they weren't in the sort of midst of that. Um, my dad left uh, China right after or the tail end of World War II. Um, my dad's father uh, was a uh, in the village where they grew up, and uh, at that time, the Americans were bombing that coast of China to um, against Japan because there were some J- Japanese, um, uh, I guess, h- higher ups. Uh, staying in that that area and they were sort of bombing the the coast and they ended up bombing my my fa- uh, father's fa- uh, family house basically so they um they had to leave and they went down to hong kong um which was not too far they were on the south uh, south coast of china so they went down to hong kong and um were were pretty much removed from the mainland china after that uh, my dad didn't go back for at least another I think he went back in the uh, late, either the late 80s or the early 90s. Um, so essentially missed the whole yeah. communist, um, well, that, that intense period called the Cultural Revolution. Right, right. And yeah. he never had any positive things to say about that, but he didn't really uh, get into the whole politics of, or the, you know, <laughs> getting anybody else embroiled in the discussion. So. so what brought you to music? When did that start happening? Uh, I was three years old, and my parents liked to take me to see different things. And um, the the story goes that they took me to a kids' recital. Uh, must have been just some some sort of local, you know, children's recital. And I showed interest, and I said I wanted to kind of. I was interested in the violin, whatever they were doing, and so they started me in a Suzuki program, a local one, uh, in New Canaan, Connecticut. With my very first teacher, Diana Tilson, who is no longer with us, but um, she taught me for the first uh, seven years of playing violin. And um, I I loved it. You know, she was a wonderful teacher. And I made some friends that I actually still have today uh, through that program. Um, so it was a, a really fun, creative time in my life. And it just kept going from there. <laughs> and, and did you play pretty much the classical repertoire for a lot of that period? Yeah, it was Suzuki repertoire. Um, I didn't have any, th- I mean, I was, you know, between the ages of three and 10, I didn't really think that I wanted to do, I didn't have any other sort of influences in that in that period. So yeah, I was perfectly happy playing all the, the Suzuki books. Right. And, and now you play you have quite a range of different styles you play, from what I understand. Yeah, I mean, that didn't start until uh, high school and college when I started to listen to other types of music. I really got into pro- progressive rock music, um, you know, from the 70s, like Genesis and and Yes and all these bands that have lots of keyboards and guitars and um, definitely not a violin band. <laughs> so I started to listen to all this other stuff and like Eric Clapton, you know, guitar greats and, and classic rock and all that stuff. Um, and then I started to improvise on the violin late in high school and then certainly in college once I got to college when I could meet other like non-classical musicians and I went to college in the city in New York City so that you know there were singer singer songwriters at on every corner in every place coffee houses abound um so it was really easy for me to start kind of branching out at that at that point mm-hmm. And how did that feel? Was it was it difficult? Had you been so far into the classical music way of playing that it was difficult that transition, or did it come very naturally? It was pretty natural for me. I um, was very fortunate. My parents weren't um, sort of the stereotypical like you know hard hardworking. I mean, they were themselves were hardworking, but they didn't stru- um, make me do anything that wasn't 
uh, comfortable or or what I truly wanted to do. Like if I had a problem with something that I was doing, like you know whether it was homework or practice or whatever, um, they were. I was really fortunate. Now that th thinking back, you know, hearing about all these other you know horrifying you know parental stories. Um, they would have a reasonable conversation with me. And at the end, either I would feel comfortable with the decision or we would come to another sort of compromise or another solution. Um, so all of my life is sort of approached that way. And when I decided to go and do something different musically, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, I have all these expectations of, you know, I must play classical or I must play whatever, you know, and I just wasn't happy playing purely classical music. I didn't see myself taking auditions to be in a, orchestra or you know mm -hmm. sitting in a, a mass of 20 or 30 violinists playing the same thing it just it didn't strike a chord with me so mm -hmm. <laughs> and any of your teachers yeah, there you go any of your teachers say well this will hurt your playing no Did you i get was that warning i was also fortunate enough that like i think at that level you, you either have two type you, you usually have two types of teachers the ones that are like all or nothing you go my way or the highway and then the other side which is like let's look at each player's strengths. Let's each student has some strengths and certainly some weaknesses and let's, you know, take them as far as they can go. And, and, and that's it. You know, all you can do is kind of help this person blossom. Um, and if they don't, they don't, you know, you can't force them to. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to have that latter type of teacher that understood that I wasn't going to be the concert soloist just because it wasn't, it wasn't in my heart. So my senior recital at Juilliard was like, half normal classical music and then the second half was all like contemporary stuff and a totally improvised weird piece with like tape recorders and a drummer and a prepared piano um and i'm I, you know I, I don't know if people liked it but they certainly let me do it and they didn't give me any you know flack for it which is quite remarkable thinking back at it so it's like this, uh, you know, the stars lining up, the right parents and the right teachers. Yeah, I was very fortunate, very fortunate. So that music to you, and this is a very important question that I've been asking, particularly the musicians, because we're asking violin makers, and we're talking to a lot of people involved in the violin world. Mm -hmm. But I'm fascinated by the idea of joy. And, and to me, joy is a deeper way, maybe, of saying happiness, but a contentment or a, a renewal, a renewing mm -hmm. force in our lives. So has the violin been that for you? Yes, it, it's been a part of that for me. Um, it's certainly not been the the sole uh, cause or or a source of, of joy, but it's been a part of much of my um, much of the joy in my life. Part of it comes from the people behind the music that I'm working in. You know, you can certainly work in. I actually had this conversation with a friend the other day. Uh, you can work in so many situations where the music is just so challenging and so wonderful, but the personalities involved are not the greatest or there's drama or conflict or something that's, you know, not great in the uh, interpersonal relationships. That, and um, that can just bring the whole ship down, you know, <laughs> um, whereas it, you can also work in, a, in an environment where the music is fine and it's good and it's fun, um, but maybe not like the most revolutionary thing you've ever played. And, uh, and the people are great and it makes all the difference. It just is rewarding and joyful and, and, um, memorable, you know, that, that to me is my, is my experience of joy is that sort of musical communication and, and also interpersonal communication. And we're talking about these relationships mm -hmm. with human beings. 
So there's also a relationship with the physical instrument. Tell me sure. about your instrument or when you you first picked up an instrument and said, oh, hello, how are you? <laughs> this is a new thing. Well, um, I've had a lot of instruments, um, various types, acoustic, electric, somewhere in between. I've always uh, felt very comfortable with a violin. Like, I don't feel necessarily like there's one instrument that is the be all end all, you know, I don't name my instruments. Uh, you know, I know some people are really, really like one-on-one -on -one connected with one instrument or, or, or a small number of instruments. For me, um, it's, it's more about the ergonomics of the instrument. If it feels comfortable to me and it's sort of, it's, um, it allows me to do musically what I want to do. It's, it's like that tool. I, I sort of see it as a tool rather than like another entity. So for me, I have a few different favorites. Um, the instrument D that Dorothy I... Dorothy and Sam. Yeah, oh, exactly. you don't name them. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the instrument that I actually bought, um, my, I didn't buy, but my parents bought for me in high school was a, a wonderful fiddle um, by Ansaldo Poggi um, from 1960, I believe. It was one of his really late instruments. Um, and where was he a maker? A modern Italian maker. Um, not particularly the most famous maker, um, but he definitely has fans. Like every time I mention his name, there's either a completely blank, like who kind of look or, or it's complete fandom. Like people love his instruments. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, um, it's an, he's an interesting maker. The, the one that I had, as I mentioned, was a late instrument, really beautiful instrument and very balanced. And it's sort of, um, as I tried a lot of instruments in my search, uh, from, from high school and also tried a lot of like colleagues fiddles, you know, later in life. Um, I realized that it was so rare to find such a balanced instrument, mm. like not overly bright, not overly dark, not overly loud, not overly quiet and comfortable, um, comfortable at all registers. Um, but again, because it's a modern instrument, it didn't have, you know, the old Italian sound. It had a little bit more of a bold sound. And I found myself just kind of gravitating toward, towards those type of instruments. What, so, what city was he a Milanese maker? I'm not sure. It's a good question. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I have to look more into that. Um, sort of the Tao of the violin. Yep, uh, exactly. The mean, never too much this way, never too much that way. Exactly. So I um, didn't end up keeping that fiddle. Um, I had it for a very, very long time, but about almost 10 years ago now, I ended up selling it because I was at a point in my life where I wasn't playing classical music fully. And I thought, well, you know what, it's, you know, it's a valuable instrument. And I'd rather have somebody who's actually playing the thing appreciate it. And I don't get a modern instrument. So um, or a more modern instrument. So I went on another search. And I found um, a wonderful instrument by Doug Cox um, up in Vermont. And, um, and again, I, I, I think it was the same qualities that kind of drew me to it. Very balanced, extremely comfortable, just a lovely sound, um, but not overly dark and not overly sweet. This brings up an idea that I, I hadn't thought of and, and to frame it until this exact moment. Many years ago, I was visiting some friends at a house. In fact, they had a little like restaurant in their home. This is very unusual and kind of gourmet a meal and you go to their home. Mm -hmm. Somehow we got talking about violins and this guy pulled a violin out from under this bed and it belonged to his mother. And I don't think it was a very special violin, but he, he basically said he's had it and he didn't play it. And uh, so I went home that night and the next day I called him up. I said, would you consider selling that? And he said, what will you offer me? 
And right then, money was very tight. Uh, you know, being a storyteller and artist, you know, you're just pinching pennies. And uh, so I didn't know what to offer him. And about two hours later, I opened up a book I had, and there was an envelope in it, and there was $300 in cash. How I had stuffed this in this book under what <laughs> circumstances? It wasn't a book I'd bought that way. I'd put the money there. Right. I couldn't remember. So I called him up. I said, $300. And he said, I'll take it. Well, I played that violin. And I loved it. You know, I mean, I, I liked it fine, you know, but I wasn't that great a player. Well, years later, there was a violin shop, and they had a Roth violin. It was a new violin, and they did certain things that I liked, and one thing or another, and I needed the money. So I sold the violin, traded it in, and got the violin. And then eventually he traded for another violin. But over the years, I've deeply regretted selling that violin. And what just came to me is what I've regretted is you not just the violin goes away because you have to let things go. But the story went with it. Mm -hmm. Because I'd found it in this way or it had this association, maybe like your parents helping you buy that first violin, have you found it easy to let things like that go? Or do you sometimes go back and say, you know, geez, maybe I should have held on to that? Um. That's a good question. I found it easier as I've gotten older to let things go. I think I used to be much more kind of material conscious in my 20s. You know, I used to collect things. I used to just, you know, collect records and comic books and things like that. You know, I liked things, not expensive things necessarily, just like I liked, you know, to have things in the house. Um, cool, cool things. Cool things. Yeah, yeah. Things that I like, like guitar pedals or whatever it might be. Just, I, you know, I liked them. Even if I wasn't using all these guitar <laughs> pedals, I had like 20 or 30 things just sitting in a closet. And then at some point in my life, and I think part of it comes from living in New York City, where like space is extreme premium. Um, and there's just never enough space for even your basic stuff. <laughs> um, I really, at some point said, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to have to like really make some choices here, not take on the stuff that I just don't need. And, and ultimately not grow too fond of, of a metal box or a, you know, a piece of wood or whatever it is like I can enjoy it. But again, like going back to that sort of like tool mentality, um, it is ultimately just a tool, um, and and maybe that collecting it. impulse comes from us being tool makers and uses sure. the tools that you do want to collect them because you feel like you'll need them sometimes. Living in West Virginia, this was classic. You know, guys who never let anything go, and you needed that bolt or that certain kind of saw. He had it somewhere, right. and he'd find it for you. And boy, was he pleased when he could because he'd held it for twenty years. But. Uh, that's an interesting idea, and letting letting this thing these things go. Mm. Yeah. And violins are such an emotional connection we have with them; uh, they have become, you know, part of our voice. And then to to let them go, and uh, it's probably a healthy thing. Yeah, and you know, it's not. Um, oh, I have a another story. A couple years ago, I was going to a. We have a company jam each year at Christmas time, and. Um, I was at that time driving people back and forth um, for that event in a 15-passenger van. I, I'd agreed because a lot of people lived in the city and the event itself was out in Long Island. I said, okay, I'll, I'll rent a 15-passenger van and I'll, I'll drive us from the office to this event. And um, long story short, I was loading stuff in for everybody else because everybody had instruments and luggage and bags and things like that. And I left my violins. There were two of them in a case, a double case. Uh, out 
on the street in the parking lot right behind the van. And basically I backed into it and drove right over the, the double case. Thankfully, the acoustic instrument was fine, but the electric instrument that I actually was quite fond of because it was very unique, um, got totally destroyed. And they were sitting in a sort of a clamshell formation and it sort of hit one side of it. So um, that was a real exercise in letting go. You know, because it's not like you can prepare. You didn't. I didn't say, "Oh, I'm going to sell this. I'm going to take time and think about, you know, who's going to buy it." And you know, it was just like, bam. And I didn't even realize I had done it until somebody brought the case to the party later. It was like, "Did you leave this in the parking lot? It looks kind of beat up." Oh no! <laughs> it was totally like the whole neck was, you know, destroyed. Everything was taken apart. So. Did you wind up replacing that particular because the maker was it a known maker? No, and the the more tragic part of that is that um, the maker. Um, uh, Rich Barbera, he lives in in New York, used to make these violins. They were, they were just electric violins. And he was a, a master of making these really comfortable, um, almost skeletal-looking electric violins back in the late 80s and early 90s when, you know, nobody was making electric violins like this. Um, and he no longer makes those. Um, and we can't, you know, you just can't buy them anywhere. They're, they're just... Uh, it's gone, basically. <laughs> There's no way to kind of reproduce it. Um, I, I suppose I could maybe find somebody else to try to, to duplicate it, but I mean, that's that's a lot of work. So uh, tell me how then you came to work for Diodario. And what's that's that? a bit of a longer story. Um, okay. I'll give a little bit of backstory. Um, so I graduated with a degree from Columbia in anthropology and um, a degree in uh, violin performance from uh, Juilliard, my master's from Juilliard. Uh, so I was always a little bit mixed. I wasn't going to um, focus 100% on just performing, though I've always performed all through my life. So after college, I sort of took a zigzag line um, through music business. Um, I worked for a couple um, record and publishing companies. And then when I was 25, my dad passed away. Um, and I had this decision to make about whether I would take over his company or not, because it was sort of a one man, like, you know, small family operation. What did um, he, what'd they make of manufacturing? Yeah. He, uh, designed and engineered, um, batching systems for concrete and asphalt plants. So they're basically the computers that like control the amount of materials being dispensed and mixed. And my mom had passed, uh, when I was 11. So I, I'm an only child. So at that point I was like, okay, I have this opportunity uh, or a challenge to um, either run this company and try it. And this is me having absolutely no business understanding of, of this side of things. You know, like I, I knew how to work in, a, in an office environment, but I'd never done payroll. I'd never managed people. I'd never, you know, I was completely <laughs> like thrown into the fire. And um, I decided that if I didn't try it, and if I failed, I failed. But if I didn't try it, I would regret not having tried it and not knowing what I could have done or I could have messed up. Um, so I jumped into it and it was really challenging, but I learned a tremendous, tremendous amount. So I ran the company for uh, almost f four years um, and sold it and, and decided to go back into music um, performing. I was. Uh, I started a metal band. Started doing some teaching as well, um, and then I realized, hmm, if I'm gonna have a metal band, this is almost. I'm. I'm almost thirty at this point. 
It's like, if I'm going to have a metal band, all our gigs are going to be like unpaid and they're going to be like Friday and Saturday nights. You know, I'm not going to be able to do a lot of these gigs, like performance gigs that are like paying, but usually Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, so I decided to get to look for a day job. Well, I found um, for a short moment, I was doing um, uh, sound design and project management and kind of uh, all around assistant at this um, software design, interactive software design company. That was great, but it was only a couple of years and it started to decline. And so I, st- I went on Craigslist one day and I was like, hmm, I guess maybe I could like do like a teaching gig or something, maybe an after school thing. And so I typed in violin into the Craigslist job search and all these listings come up you know, teachers and blah, blah, blah. At the very bottom of Craigslist's um, search findings, you get this section that says, these are not in your immediate area, but they're related and you might be interested. So um, one of the first listings down there was the D'Addario product manager for orchestral strings. And I clicked it and I was like, huh, it must have like business experience or like a music business degree. It must also be a musician and must be interested in like the, the whole technology side of, of product development and also marketing side and doing outreach. And, and I read it and the very first thought was, man, that's too perfect. It's not true. I'm not going to apply that. That, that can't be, that job sounds exactly like me. <laughs> and I'm like, nobody wants this crazy, like zigzagged line of experience. So I kind of ignored it for a day. Then I talked to my friend about it and, and he was like, what are you talking about? Just apply. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that, you know, you don't like it or they don't like you and nothing happens. Move on. So I was like, all right. So I applied. And, uh, the first interview was supposed to be just a couple hours or a few hours. And it ended up being the whole entire day. I ended up seeing everybody from, you know, my current boss and my current colleagues to um, John D'Addario III and all the people in HR and, and Fan Tao, who, who um, is our director of R&D, um, and ended up getting offered the job. So <laughs> it was like match made in heaven. That's great, and that that's a long story to to get to a. Well, kind of again, condition. it brings a sense that we brought. We were talking earlier about how certain violins come into our lives, mm-hmm. or or uh, you know, we're lucky where we have the right parents and the right teachers mm-hmm. for the kind of life we want to live musically. Mm-hmm. So I believe in destiny, quite honestly, and I love these stories. So um, give me a sense of somebody who doesn't know anything about the violin string world. Mm-hmm. Who are the big players? How competitive is it? What does it mean to have an American company in the mix? Whatever you can tell us. Sure. Well, the competitive landscape for violin strings or or orchestral strings is relatively simple. Most of the big names are European. Um, So the the history of of string making is a very European one. So you've got your big names like Parastro and Tomastic, which everybody knows around the world. And then some of them sort of um, medium level names like Larson, um, Yarger, you know, Warcall. And but those are all European. And in the States, there's not that many. There's a super sensitive down in Florida. And then there's us. Um, And there probably are some, you know, really, really independent people, you know, you know, sort of cottage industry type companies uh, in, in the, the gut States. strings mostly yeah right? but again it's not um i wouldn't call them sort of a large-scale production or even a medium-scale production then there's also some companies out of china and um, i believe in korea as well some making sort of the lower end student type strings um which may or may not 
have an actual name. <laughs> Some of them just get packaged or sold to um, to like Chinese instruments and that sort of thing. Um, Competition-wise, I mean, I think you know, obviously, it's competitive. Um, there is competition, and the the competitors are excellent string makers. Um, everybody knows their names for a reason, um, which is a great thing about our industry. I think it's nice to have competitors that are challenging rather than just kind of like, you know, setting the bar low. For instance, you know, they, there's there's a, always something to kind of think about and mm -hmm. and. Um, be challenged by you know their new products are excellent um their engineers are excellent um most of them you know there's not a bad product on the market yeah how important are endorsements in this world for the especially in the classical world yeah orchestral world for the orchestral world endorsements are not as big a priority mostly because well there's i guess two main reasons one we don't change our strings nearly as often as guitar players We'll change our strings every few months or, you know, sometimes with the larger instruments once or twice a year. And um, if you've got a professional job, you don't need somebody to give you 200 bucks every now and then to buy some strings, you know. So it's not like, oh, wow, wow you're saving me so much time and money. Uh, whereas for like a guitarist um, or, or a drummer, I mean, those things are constantly getting changed. And, and it's a lot more of a, an enticement to get some free product. There's also less of emphasis, less emphasis p placed on public face, you know, like as a teacher or as a orchestral musician, people don't really care if there's a poster of you somewhere or a, an ad in a magazine, you know, and, and the names are less recognizable. Like if you put uh, the, you know, cello teacher from this school up in the hall, in, in, a, in a poster or, or in a music store, Chances are nobody's going to know who that is. So yeah, the it has influence, to be a Perlman or a or a Bell. Exactly, and the number of those that caliber musician is very very small. And then the average violin student walking through the store looks at a poster, say it's a poster of Itzhak Perlman, and says, "Oh, that's interesting. He's using those strings." But then they go to their teacher, and the teacher's like, "No, I want you to do, use these other strings," and that's the end of that. So the teacher is actually the the biggest influence. And so for us, endorsees are, are sort of a vehicle to either get to the teacher or they themselves are the teachers. And we're um, working with them to perform outreach um, to either their students or their network of, of other teachers. Well, I guess what was making me think about this is, um, d does a sense of nationalism play into this at all? So I was thinking in terms of, you know, maybe an American violinist would be you know, if they loved your strings and they were made in the United States. I mean, one of the things when I went to your factory and interviewed Mr. Dow, uh, I just finished uh, reading part of the book Factory Man, which was written about the, the furniture factory in Galax, Virginia, which is also happens to be a great fiddle town, the Galax uh, Fiddle Festival is held there. And uh, basically, you know, so much of our manufacturing has left the United States. Mm -hmm. It's just gone. And uh, so here's a company making strings and hiring people in the States and uh, fighting that good fight from our, my point of view. Mm -hmm. I'm an American, so I like that. I want to root for them. So where does a sense of nationalism maybe fit in when you have such well-established companies that have been in the business so long? And, and much of the classical music came from Europe and certainly always changing. But what can you say about that? 
It's an interesting question because um, we do occasionally get people who are in the classical world or the orchestral world who do comment on the fact that they like that our strings are American made. Um, and we certainly don't make a secret of it. We we tell everybody and, and we're very proud of this. But again, as I said about the sort of teacher influence, so much of um, our priorities as a classical player are, are given to us from our teachers at a very young age. And, and this is a gross generalization, but in, in general, classical students aren't encouraged to, to question their teachers as much as, say, a rock, you know, rock guitar guy or a drummer or whatever. And, you know, there's certainly that, that mentality in those worlds as well. You know, you don't want to just be arguing against your teacher, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a less conservative world than the orchestral world. And the orchestral world is kind of the old school, like master apprentice type approach where, you know, you just do whatever your teacher One of the last yep. incarnations of that, mm-hmm. that way of yep. learning. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, um, you could say all you want about your strings, you know, until the teacher really buys into it. And if their priorities are American made, or if they don't really care, or if their teacher them told them to buy this other string, you know, it, it really depends. You know, we have to work quite hard to to get that point across and to make it matter. Well, that's what I was thinking because you, you know, first we were talking about the musicians that might have endorsed, and then you said it's really up to the teachers. I'm thinking, do teachers think that way? And then, of course, into my head popped uh, Mark O'Connor mm-hmm. and his uh, push, a very serious push, to say, you know, we should be teaching the American repertoire. Mm-hmm even the fiddle repertoire to young children who might, in fact, go on to what we now call classical. I mean, all these barriers are obviously breaking down in this age. And uh, and that's fascinating that mm. that should be happening. So, But you're in the mix. And this is you're the largest musical string instrument company in the world. Most of your, work, most of your business is done with guitar and mandolin and right. banjo and so forth, right? Right. So this is a small part that this company has determined they're going to stay in the market, mm-hmm. right? And I love the uh, the history of this family. These were immigrants that came from Italy that had been shepherds, and part of the way you made your money was using the intestines of the sheep you butchered for the everything else you did right. that for, <laughs> but you might have made as much money from their, their intestines, which were turned into strings. So this is a European family that uh, has this business is now in the United States. So um, it's fascinating. So how, how do you feel about that, you know, what their commitment is to orchestral strings and their R&D on it? And what, where are they trying to, you know, what's the challenge? Where can you go with this? Well, it's, it's really a fantastic company. Um, one of the things that is so wonderful about it is that there's n- not a differentiating philosophy be- behind the orchestral strings as opposed to, say, the guitar strings or the drum heads this kind of central through-running idea of continuous improvement and innovation. So we approach our orchestral strings um, R&D-wise with the same um, constant challenging of ourselves, you know, to create something new and different. We don't want to create copycat products. We don't want to, you know, rehash things or rename things over and over and over. We just want to kind of push the boundaries. And obviously we want to be able to sell those ideas. So we want to be in touch with the market and understand what they need and even foresee what they don't know they need yet, um, which is a, also a challenge. Um, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah. How much travel do you have to do? 
Uh, me personally, a lot. <laughs> Did you know that when you signed on? Yes, yes. That was actually in the job description. It was, you know, you must travel X percent um, so you, or expect to travel X percent. And you travel all over the world? I do. Yeah, so my, my position um, is uh, one of, it's, it's multifaceted, but I work with all of our uh, international distributors in a marketing uh, aspect. Um, so our sales team will work with them in a sales aspect. Um, and so I do a lot of travel either with the sales um, reps or with the distributors reps um, and everything in between. I do a lot of uh, domestic travel as well. But um, I would say that my main focus is international because um, I have a colleague who works primarily in the domestic educator market. So you're being a musician, you've been lucky occasionally. I know maybe you're doing it right now here in Seattle where you can piggyback your musical passion and the, and the chance to perform along right. with coming to Wintergrass and seeing how, because you have a booth here and you have some great people with your uh, strings here. So tell me about that. Yeah. So um, in the last few years, I've been touring with the Indigo Girls, which has taken me around the country a bunch. And it's strangely coincidental things have happened uh, over the last few years where for one reason or another, I'm there for a work uh, Diderio thing. And also there happens to be the opportunity to play an Indigo Girls show at the same time um, or vice versa. So this time, this tour was booked before I knew that Wintergrass was this weekend. And I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to be in Seattle anyway. Why don't I just come during the day? Because, you know, our sound checks aren't until late in the afternoon. And um, I always like the, the chance to um, do some outreach while I'm on the road with the Indigo Girls. So uh, just worked out really great. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess on everyone's mind, I was going to say on everyone's mind is China. What a huge force in the violin world. Mm -hmm. The quality of instruments are going up. We mentioned these Chinese makers of strings. Are they really coming on now with, with a serious intention to compete in the market on strings? I think they're trying. I don't think they're quite there yet. But as we know with almost everything else, it, 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 it's sort, certainly a matter of time. Um, you know, I don't think the Chinese approach is just, okay, we're just going to be mediocre and, and that's it. I think that they have uh, a drive to master the art of making strings. And right now, um, they're getting better. Uh, I don't know a lot about what's coming out right this very second, but in the last uh, last year or, or two years ago, um, there were some pretty okay products coming out, um, surprisingly so. I was just in North Carolina, and they were having a major conference and looking at what was going to happen with automation in the state. And they were looking upwards of almost 70% of their citizens within 20 years may have no jobs at all. That's yeah. so much is being automated. So how important is the human being? Because uh, when I went to your factory, the thing that caught my charm, my, my fancy, were the silkers. Mm. And these were the people, these women who have been there a long time and have this unusual skill of just wrapping these colored silk things on the very end of the fiddle mm -hmm. strings, which has a purpose in some way, because you might know which string it is, but is no longer necessary. Uh, they were there originally, I guess, it was necessary to hold the string onto the, the tailpiece or whatever, right. but it's really not necessary, but it's a tradition being carried on at a time. So it's against efficiency. I love that. Something that's done for the art and the memory of 
the tradition. But even there, you know, you could see, oh, you know, a, fa- a machine could be made to do that. We could still have the silk, but we don't necessarily have to have the people. So, and, and in the sales force, of course, human beings. So, tough question. Anything you can do with that from your perspective as you see these changing things at your age, where the human fits into the, this equation? Well, I can certainly speak to, um, you know, my experience at Diderio. I, I can't really expand it beyond that. But we've, we've brought on a lot of automation, new automation, in the, la- in, in the time that I've been there, which has been just over six years. And we've also hired and expanded the hired more people in the factory and expanded the factory size itself. So to me, automating things is not inherently against, you know, providing jobs or employing people. It's almost the contrary. Like I think it's great to have all those machines, but then you need to have the people who are able to support uh, those things and also support the increase in sales and promote, you know, more sales. So you can't just say one-to-one, like, okay, we're going to throw in this machine and fire 20 people. Um, and we don't certainly have that approach at all. Um, quite the opposite. So if somebody, for instance, was doing a job that got automated, um, the first thing that we do is find another role for them and perhaps an expanded role or a more developed role. And we always encourage, and there's a lot of this sort of um, moving either laterally or upward between departments, where, wherever people might be. There's a lot of people that have been there for many, many, many years. and started out, you know, as a, a factory, you know, base level um, winding machine operator. And now some, some of them are like production floor managers and even engineers themselves. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's not a place where people kind of get thrown out. I just, I had a conversation. I was on a, uh, an airplane Southwest, where you line up, you know, if you're mm-hmm. an A or a yep. B, and I was lined up ready to go. And this was right after I was in North Carolina. And in fact, I'd heard this thing on the radio all about this conference and how many people they were afraid wouldn't have jobs and how the state's going to train people. There was a young woman behind me. I'd say she was late 20s. And she worked for this agricultural company. I think it was Con Ag or some company like that. And she was talking to somebody else. And I don't know how it happened, but we wound up talking about this. And I said to her, well, you know, sales... I would think you really need people in sales. And she looked at me and said, no, we've lost 80% of our sales force. You know, people just call in and get what they want. Mm. But I like what you said about the fact that there might be something, in fact, unique to this business. So much of this, the orchestral string world relies upon the human connection with the teacher. And the teacher, of course, that's a human connection with the student. And so you have to have these relationships. So maybe the old school idea of human relationships meaning really having consequence in the success of your undertaking. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Um, That's been a a huge focus recently. Um, Obviously, the time that I'm on the road, it's all about, you know, one-on-one talking or training or whatever it might be. But there's only so much that one person can do, obviously. So we've been um, bringing on more people. This this is much bigger in the woodwinds department. Uh, we have a huge woodwinds clinician program in the in the states now. Um, it started out with like four people, and now it's like I don't know thirty something clinicians. But because we've seen the importance of having these people go out on the road, speaking directly to teachers and students in the schools, in the places where they congregate, because you're not going to just post a sign and have people show up. It it doesn't work that way. You have to kind of go into their worlds. 
and um, and speak their language. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Besides playing with the Indigo Girls, Lyris also has her own band. Let's listen now to two pieces of music performed by her band. The first is called Eos, and the second, Evil Czar. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow Project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We realize these times are challenging, and we hope these podcasts bring some measure of comfort and a sense of hope. Thank you.